look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Let's do a quick background. The author is John, the son of Zebedee. Scholars place this date of writing anywhere from 85 to 95. If I had to guess, it would be 90, 91 in that ballpark, maybe a later date on this. Uh, the place of writing is up in the air. Some say Ephesus, some say others. Uh, so it's kind of a good guess. One of the central issues, and we'll address this here this morning, one of the central issues was Gnosticism. In, in, in fact, when you go back and you look at 1 John, John uses no knowledge or knowing 38 times. So it's very specific, very targeted. These things have I written that you may know eternal life. That's a direct uh, attack on Gnosticism. So as we unfold this this morning, there's only four, five, six, seven, four verses this morning as we go through. First of all, we're going to look at uh, fallen man practices lawlessness. Everyone, and this is those who are outside of Christ, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness in verse 4. So John here makes a statement that everyone that practices sinning is lawlessness, and then his conclusion is sin is lawlessness. That's a, that's a good way of saying this is a problem, this is what it means, and this is the ultimate goal of this. So sin is lawlessness. John uses this word practice, poyo, which is something that is done or performed. So when you're practicing something, you are doing it. It is something that is happening in your life, but it is ultimately something that you willfully do. That's the way John uses the word harmartia, which is to engage in wrongdoing, that is sin, and then harmartia again in a different angle, to act contrary to the law and will of God. So the person who does this in their life are acting willfully against God. The issue here is that it is deliberate. It is a deliberate action on the part. Gustav Stalin uh, makes a note here. A complete transformation takes place when the New Testament uses harmartia to denote a determination of the human nature in hostility to God. So what we're, John is dealing with is Gnostics who were saying that there's nothing you can do except sin because all matter is evil. And therefore, it's okay if you do it. It's okay to live your life how you see fit and, and to do it with all the gusto that you have. Here it denotes a deliberate act of sin and willfulness against God's lawful will. Philippians 3.18, Paul writes this, For many of whom I have told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. And again, Paul's putting it out there, but some, Paul says something here. This should not give us the opportunity to go, those people, Paul had a very soft spot in his heart 
for lost people. And so sometimes we can get dogmatic in how we interact with those who are outside of Christ. Yes, it is willful intent. Yes, we should not get involved with their sin. Yes, we should not approve their sin. But it should make us realize that these people need the gospel. They are acting sinful because they do not know or because they've heard the message and they have rejected it and they continue to move forward. Lawlessness, onomia, to behave with complete, this this is interesting, lawlessness, to behave with complete disregard for laws or the regulations of a society. And within the context here, John's talking about the laws of God that he distributed back in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, all those laws. But this group now is acting against that. I don't know about you, but when I look at our world today, this is kind of the epitome. Civil disobedience requires no permission. When we see all the stuff happening in our society, uh, normal laws being challenged, we have to understand that even in some cases, the people are doing it out of ignorance. They may have not known the gospel or heard of the gospel, and some of them have heard of the gospel, and they are willfully going against that which is normal or that which is contrary to the law of God. This is our world in a nutshell. Civil disobedience requires no permission. Lawlessness, once known that it is sinful, and you have shared the gospel, or a person has heard the gospel, lawlessness, and I wrote this, at its core is thumbing your finger at God. And again, I get it because I watch it and I get a little upset when I see everything unfolding in our culture today. But ultimately, the lost world is acting lost because they are lost. And if the Apostle Paul could say, and I tell you, even with tears in my eyes, there are those that are enemies of the cross. In one sense, there needs to be compassion for the lost. In another sense, we need to realize that not all are going to embrace and accept the gospel. And this is part of the fallen nature. This is part of the Genesis chapter 3 fall of man. It affected all of us. And so John puts it right up front here when he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And then John talks here about a lifestyle. About a lifestyle. No one, this is verse 6. So John does 4 and 6 for the unsaved and 5 and 7 for the saved. So it's kind of like he does A, B, a, B, kind of a pattern like, like that. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either known him, or excuse me, has either seen him or known him. So I've said before, and I'll say it again, John's issue particularly in the book of John, 
this first John, is really an attempt to squelch Gnosticism. So you say, well, Pastor Mike, what is that big word, Gnosticism? It really means to know. Epicurus, who you can see here, 341 to 270 before the Common Era, that's BCE, before the Common Era. He had a philosophy, and if you study the history going back, you'll find that Gnosticism and atheism has a lot in common with Epicurus. So his argument was this, and I do believe this is 300 years before Christ, before the advent of Christ, is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? That was his first argument. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? His conclusion, then, God is not powerful. God is not powerful. When you think about the Gnostics, which we'll get to in just a minute, the Gnostics said there's no way around it. All matter is evil. His second argument was, is God able but not willing? So the issue that Epicurus is dealing with is, how do you get around the sin issue? How do you get around all the evilness that is taking place in the world? It's a philosophical approach. And yet later, traditions will come along and they will pick from this mindset. Is God able but not willing to stop sin? or evil. And I've actually heard this in our contemporary culture. Why does God allow all the evil to take place in the world? Well, we know that as Christians, but unbelievers don't, they just kind of reason through it. But this one is, is God willing, but, or is God able, but not willing, then God himself is evil. The argument being, if, if God knows that evil and sin is taking place, and he does nothing to stop it, then God, by very nature, is evil. That's their argument. Of course, we know that to be totally contrary. God is a loving God. He's a caring God. And yes, he's a God of wrath and judgment. But here you have this, at least from this point, two ways. God is either not powerful or God is evil by, very, by the very fact that he won't stop evil. God is, in a sense, participating in the evil, according to this philosophical approach. Is God neither able nor able to or willing to stop it? This is the big point. And this, this is what I think we're still confronting today. Then why call him God? So you can understand the mindset even 300 years before Christ. They're trying to make sense of this idea of God for the Hebrews during this period. They were worshiping the one true God and Epicurus comes along and says, well, wait a minute, what do you do with all the evil that takes place? Well, as believers now, we know that sin is a result of man's fall, not God's problem. So everything that is taking place in our world today is not a result of God not willing and not able but it's a direct reflection on the fall of man and innate sin that is causing the problems in which we are encountering in our culture. That's why when you look at our world today, and morals are upside down. Have you all noticed that? The morals are just upside down. 
it's really bizarre. And it's really accelerated in the last two or three years, the moral of America. I would say the moral decline of just about everywhere. You get to a place in a culture when I, I want to say that there's going to be a rebound and a move back to moral sanity. I want to say that. I hope that's true. But the issue that he dealt with was what do you do with evil and sin? Hebrew, how do you address that? And for us, how do you Christians address it? Well, we address it by the fact that man fell, sinned against God, and then that's why we have disease, that's why we have death, that's why we have everything that flows out of that. That is not God's fault. That is not God's fault. That is our fault. Because we were the ones that sinned against God. So let's move to the Gnostics' main teaching, and you'll see how the Gnostics drew from this. Number one, Gnostics believed that all matter was evil in reference to Jesus. Now, when you look at the Gnostic mindset, the same as Epicurus, what do you do with sin? Gnostics say all matter is evil. Therefore, Christ could not have con- had come down and taken a human form because that form would have been evil and therefore negating the, de- the, uh, the divinity of Christ. So the Gnostic comes along and they had great, they had great success. Uh, John's dealing with it here. Uh, the Gnostics come along and they say all matter is evil. Sin is unavoidable. So all matter is evil, and they were teaching this in Asia Minor and other places. They were starting to make inroads into the church, and John goes, wait, no, you're wrong. So sin is unavoidable. So what's the logical conclusion? When you say all matter is evil, sin is unavoidable. Therefore, it's all right. You can do no otherwise. It's Calvinism in reverse. Or Calvinism in perverse. You have no choice. Jesus only came and appeared to have a body. Therefore, Jesus' death on the cross was a transfiguration moment in which Jesus appeared to have a human body but did not have a human body. And therefore, the Gnostics taught the only way to get saved is through special knowledge that only the Gnostics had. And so the way that you escape the corruption of this world is you have the special knowledge your body's going to sin. You sin with all the gusto you have. But if you have this special knowledge, it will get you to heaven. What happens is with this type of system is it negates most of the New Testament where Paul says, what I don't want to do, that's what I do. It's a constant struggle with the sin nature. We struggle every day with our sin nature. And yet, at the same time, because Christ was fully human, he lived a sinless life and took it to the cross to pay for those sins. 
we are now saved, the Holy Spirit takes up an imperfect human body like ours, and his spirit in Romans, his spirit, Romans chapter 8, his spirit adopts our spirit and confirms that we are children of God, even though we are still carnal and vulnerable to sin. You could see how this would be a very appealing gospel. You mean I can live as I want to live? And all I need to do is hold to the knowledge that you give me? Versus Paul says, fight the flesh. Do not give in to the flesh. Live holy, pure lives. That's tough. That's hard to do. And so you have this at work. Now, we're going to read this again. Now, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The word seen means to experience Christ. The word known is ginosko, which means to learn or know a person by direct personal experience. Now let me stop here for a second. Does this mean that we will never sin? No. Matter of fact, sometime this week you're going to sin. You're going to do something to either grieve the Spirit or you're going to do something that is willfully against what you know is right and wrong, you may possibly sin. Everybody in here is going to do that. John is not talking about the occasional sin or the occasional stumble or the, uh, the mistakes that you make in your life. He's not talking about an occasional thing. What John is talking about here is an ongoing process by which there is no evidence of God on your life. You think about a person that says, I know Christ. I accepted him when I was seven years old. The person may be in his 50s. You see no evidence of Christ in the person's life. Jesus said you will know them by their fruits. And so if you have a person who claims to know Jesus Christ, but there's no evidence of that playing out in their lives, then it should bring into question, did they really come to a saving faith in Christ? It's not talking about somebody and not talking about somebody who, who goes, oh Lord, I messed up. I mean, goodness gracious, look at King David. King David had the biggest of all. And yet he was a man after God's own heart. It's not dealing with the occasional sin that trips us up. Everybody in here, including myself, is going to sin at some point this week. Mark it down. The goal is not to sin. I look at it this way. If you can live your life and nothing phases you, and you live your life the way that you want to, and you go about your life, you never think about Jesus, never talk about it, never do anything, then I, I got to tell you, I think you go back to the foot of the cross and see if you've ever trusted in Christ. There needs to be some type of, well, put it this way. The Holy Spirit, when he's inside of you, will convict you of sin. So when you do something wrong, you immediately go, 
you know what, God? That was a sin. I ask for forgiveness of that sin. Cleanse me and make me right again, and that goes away. And here's the good news. For all of us who are going to stumble this week at some point, maybe you won't. I don't know, but... First John chapter 2, verse 1, John, dealing with this issue of sin, says, My dear children, I write to, the, write to you this so that you will not sin. So the goal of a Christian life is not to sin. But if somebody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He says, Okay, Lord, uh, God, account this on me. And you don't, it's not like you have to live a sinless life. Charles Fenney, that was his mistake theologically. He believed that you could live, you could reach a state of sinless perfection in this world. I'm telling you, you can't. I am not telling you to go ahead and sin and live like you want to. Because, and, and really, you can't because the Holy Spirit that indwells you begins to say, hey, Mike, that's not right. Hey, Mike, that's wrong. If there's no constraint then you got to ask the question, was the person truly saved? Daniel Aiken in his commentary, John is not suggesting that the child will commit, will not commit a single act of sin. Instead, John is describing a way of life, a character, a prevailing lifestyle. Here the present tense verb contextually depicts Linear, continual action. That is, the person does not stop sinning. They, they don't really care to stop. They just keep doing it. In other words, the believer will not live a life characterized by sin. Again, if you are not convicted inside, you just continue to live however you want to live, the question could be asked, do you really know Jesus? So John's, these Gnostics, I want you to understand what's happening here. These Gnostics were saying, live as you please. There's no, there's no constraints. Just live as you please. John rebuts that saying, uh, those that abide in Christ, they don't keep sinning willfully. There is some type of constraint. Now, to the other side. Believers live righteously, or that's the goal. That's the goal, to live righteously. And he starts here with Christ's mission. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. So verse 4 and verse 6 deal with the deliberate lifestyle of sin. I guess you could put it that way. A deliberate lifestyle of sin. That's, that's mankind. But you know, Christians, that he appeared to take away sin. And in him there is no sin. John's very targeted here. Christ had a real body. By the way, for those of you that are not familiar with Gnosticism, John starts right out of the gate attacking it. 1 John chapter 1, 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen, and which we have touched, with our hands concerning the word of life. Why would John start this, his gospel this way? What he is saying is, we saw Jesus, we heard Jesus, 
and we physically touched Jesus Christ. He was fully man. So this idea that you need a special knowledge to get to heaven is bogus. Very bogus. No other way to explain this. Why he starts out, heard, seen, touched. And the life was made manifest. It was visible. It was real. Christ had a real body. Gnostics, you were and he starts it right at the beginning. And he says it again. We have seen it. And we testify to it. And proclaim to you Jesus Christ's eternal life. Yes, you're going to sin. But you know what? At some point, you have to come. To, this really, I want you to understand what Gnostics do. They attack Jesus at the point where sin can be dealt with. Because if Jesus didn't have a real body then the sacrifice was complete. And John says at the beginning, we've seen it, we've heard it, and we've touched him concerning Jesus Christ. If Jesus was not fully human, then he is not God at all. He came to take away sin. Iro harmatera which means to, dis listen to this, the Greek words, to destroy wrongdoing. How did that take place? It took place on the cross. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant that I had paid the price in full. And by the way, Jesus bled real blood. And he was basically tortured and the wrath of God was poured out upon him Paul writes the wrath of God was poured out upon him so that he might redeem us by his perfect sacrifice David Walls in his commentary wrote this Jesus dealt with sin the only way that was suitable to God he lived a sinless life and made the ultimate perfect sacrifice his perfect life became the model, the new creature God wants to make of all of his children. Jesus was real, and his mission in this life, his mission was primarily to be a living sacrifice for you and for me. And he did that perfectly and therefore when we trust in Christ we say his blood covers all of our sin but the Gnostic Jesus didn't have a real body therefore you need something else let me say this this morning Jesus is all that you need if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and put your faith in him, all of your sin, based on Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross, are covered by his blood. We, we get images of this from the Old Testament. Do you remember when God commanded Moses to tell the children of Israel to put blood over the doorpost? 
and that when the, when the angel of death came through, if the blood was over the doorpost, that the angel of death would pass them by. New Testament, Jesus' blood has to be on the doorpost of your heart, and when that happens, he'll pass you by, and you'll be saved. Your sin has been dealt with, finished, and complete. And John adds the point. It's kind of like John's got the touchdown, and now he's getting ready to kick an extra point. And he puts it through, and he says, by the way, in him there was no sin. That flies against and in face of the Gnostic belief that you live how you want to live. And there are some Christians that believe that. You trust in Jesus and then live as you want to live. Now, sorry, there, the, when the Holy Spirit comes in at some point, at some point you're going to go, I shouldn't be stealing from people. I shouldn't be using foul language at some point, at some point. That's got to be understood that the Holy Spirit is speaking. He's not talking about one sin here. He's talking about a lifestyle. So yes, we aim, as the Air Force, we aim high. And then we aim to be sinless even though we're going to sin. If there's no struggle Maybe go back and check to see if there's salvation. Our calling, John concludes, our calling, little children, let no one deceive you. So this means mislead. Plano, which means mislead. Somebody says to you, well, your sin really doesn't matter. And you can live your life how you want to. And I've heard Christians say that. And it's a troubling thought. But John says, okay, I'm going to tell you what it is. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he is righteous. The word righteous is dikainosiene. Dikainosiene. Which means doing what God requires. I bet you everybody in here knows basically what God requires of you. Don't you? I mean, you pretty well, I've known you for 15 years, some of you for 15 or 16 or longer, 20. You were that big, you were small. Most of you do know how to live for Christ. I got pretty good confidence with that. Most of you know when, yeah, that was a sin. I shouldn't have gone there, and I did. And then you got to go through the whole thing of apologizing and asking God for forgiveness of that sin, not to keep your salvation. It's just a, on one end, you can have legalism that says, well, at any point you stumble, you lose your salvation. And on the other end, you can have liberalism, which says you can live however you want to live. No, take that center road that says, you know, I'm going to struggle with sin, but when I sin, I'm going to ask God to forgive me and to cleanse me. Not to keep your salvation, but because of your salvation. I like this little cartoon. 
uh, and I'll explain it. But this is a pretty good cartoon. Let's sing Kumbaya until the ideas come, and then we'll go back to our desk and come up with a hundred reasons why they will never, ever work in a million years. In other words, business as usual. You get good ideas, but then we're going to figure out why they don't work. It's just business as usual. For us as believers, if you're not living right, it is something you need to break out of. You, you don't need the business as usual. You want to aim high. You want to live in a, 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 a righteous life before God, doing what God requires day in and day out. Some get stuck. I understand that. Some get stuck in their Christian walk, and it's just business as usual, day by day. Uh, I'm not going to read my Bible today. I'm, 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 I may not go to church this Sunday. Uh, I, 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 and then you get stuck in this business as usual when you forget that you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And therefore, we want to aim high to live and to please him in this dark world. We will struggle with sin. That's a fact. We're not out of this body yet. When we fall, realize, thank goodness, that we have Jesus Christ to cover our sins. And then just ask for forgiveness of those sins. Look at your lifestyle today. Examine your lifestyle and ask the question, am I just business as usual? Or am I really seeking to practice righteousness in my daily life? 